If you would, though, uh, open up your uh, Bibles to Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Follow along with me as I read, starting in verse 1. It says, After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum, and a centurion... Uh, had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the satyrian heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is um, the one who has built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he, had, or when he was um, not far from the house, the satyrian sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man uh, set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, uh, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those um, whom uh, he had sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Let's pray. Dear me, Father, Lord, uh, we are amazed that Jesus was amazed at this man. Lord, what faith. God, I pray that uh, as we examine this passage this morning, Lord, that you challenge our hearts. You challenge our thinking, Lord. To see where we stand in front of you. God, be with us this morning. Humble us. Help us to put our faith in you. In your son's name, amen. Have you ever felt like you deserve something that you didn't get? I know uh, as Americans, we're notorious for thinking that we deserve, we deserve more. It's been titled an entitlement country or culture that we live in. And you see it all over the place. Teenagers um, believe that they should be on a sports team or the, the starter of a sports team. And the coach just doesn't like them. Or I deserved an A, the teacher didn't like me and therefore I got a B. And parents are just as bad. You see this in adults, I deserved a job, or I deserved this raise, I deserved a promotion, or the government should be giving me something. I want to focus on a question today, and this question is, what does God owe you? Two weeks ago, Brent talked on false teaching and false teachers uh, Jesus says in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Mark seven fifteen, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. Sheep's clothing because it looks Christian, it looks orthodox, it looks like it's right teaching, it's sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Ravenous, this is, comes from the Greek word um, arpox, which means vicious or violently greedy. False teaching is vicious, violent, ravenous wolves. And Jesus views false teaching as a big deal. It's a big deal. False teaching is destructive and it's dangerous. 
Listen, ideas have consequences. This is a title of um, uh, a teaching series by R.C. Sproul's where he goes through the history of philosophy, and it's titled, Ideas Have Consequences. Who would have thought that Karl Marx's ideas on politics and his philosophy or philosophical teachings would end up being the justification for the death of millions? Or Joseph Smith's supposed revelation from God would lead millions down the path to hell. Or theological liberalism, which started in the 1800s in Germany, which opened the door to the possibility of errors in Scripture. And talk about wolves in sheep clothing. These These were theologians. These were men that I believe truly loved Scripture, but started to think that the only way they can preserve Scripture against the arguments that were presented to them by the Enlightenment was to claim that miracles probably were exaggerated or the Bible authors were most likely mistaken. The simple idea, this false teaching, destroyed seminaries like, like Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Destroyed denominations that were the founding to our country, like the Presbyterians, the Congregationalists. Lutherans, the Northern Baptists, almost wiped out the church in Europe. Theological liberalism even opened the door for men like Adolf Hitler to influence the church into supporting his causes. Getting prepared for this sermon, I read an interesting article by a, a Christian Jew scholar who follows the 1800s theological liberalism and just theologian after theologian, the progression of of thought, and then compared it to the end result of Adolf Hitler's view of the church and scripture and Christianity. Do you think false teaching is a big deal? Ideas have consequences. That's why the Bible calls it ravenous wolves, described as sheep or disguised as sheep. As a pastor, I think one of the scariest false teachings that is out there for evangelicals, at least it's what I believe is the scariest false, teach, false teaching out there right now, is what's called the uh, therapeutic gospel. I mentioned Brent um, used this word a few times. It's not the gospel. It's not the good news of Jesus uh, Christ. There's no salvation found in it. Yet statistics have shown that the majority of professing Christians in America hold to it. It scares me because it's so subtle. It seems Christian. It seems so compassionate, even orthodox. This morning, I want to make our church aware of this false teaching. I want to expose this wolf in sheep clothing. So getting ready for this sermon, I try to find where that term came from, the theological the therapeutic gospel, where that came from. And it took me to an article written by Al Mohler in 2005 called Moralistic Therapeutic Deism, the New American Religion. Found out that Mohler didn't coin the term therapeutic gospel. It's actually a research team from the University of North Carolina. Let me just read a part of Mohler's article. It says this, When Christian Smith and his fellow researchers with the National Study of Youth and Religion at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill took a close look at the religious beliefs held by American teenagers, they found that the faith held 
and described by most adolescents came down to something the researchers identified as moralistic therapeutic deism. As described by Smith and his team, moralistic therapeutic deism consists of beliefs like, there's five beliefs that they're going to say that the majority of of, uh, teenage Christians in America believe, and they're going to sound very Christian-ish. Listen, first one. A God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Sounds good so far. Second belief. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Third belief. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Fourth. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. I want to repeat number three, because I think this is where the therapeutic part comes into. And it says this, the central goal of life, this is the chief end of man, what we are here for, the therapeutic gospel says, is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And that doesn't sound all that bad. If you compare this to the Westminster Catechism, which says the chief end of man or the central goal of life is to, be, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I want to compare them because they're, they're very subtle. Both say that joy and happiness are extremely important. That's part of man's purpose. It's part of our purpose is to be happy and joy-filled. But the therapeutic gospel says happiness is found in feeling good about oneself. Where the true gospel says happiness is found in the glory of God. Therapeutic gospel makes man the center of the universe, feeling good about oneself. The true gospel has God as the center of the universe. God's glory is where happiness and joy is found. Subtle differences, but huge. Huge. The Bible makes clear that true blessing and happiness is found in God's glory. And God's glory is only found when we have a true understanding of self, that we are sinful that we have rebelled against God, that we deserve wrath and punishment. This is why Romans 3.23 say, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. And this is also why Jesus said, Blessed or happy are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They are blessed because they will be the ones that reach out for the grace of God. The therapeutic gospel says that God owes you a happy life. And therefore you should feel good about yourself. And if you don't get that happy life through bad circumstances, that God will be there to comfort you. He's nothing more than a big therapist in the sky. And the salvation comes through the comfort in painful circumstances. 
Although there's a, there's a ring of truth in that, that's not biblical Christianity. The article continues, Moralistic therapeutic deism is also about providing therapeutic benefits to its believers. As the researchers explain, this is not a religion of repentance from sin. Rather, what appears to be the acting or actual dominant religion among U.S. teenagers is is, uh, centrally about feeling good, happy, secure, and at peace. And teenagers are learning this from parents, from churches. And to be honest, when I hear testimonies, I hear the therapeutic gospel all the time. I don't hear any mention of, of sin, no talk of repentance, no talk of godly sorrow. If I had to boil, just to get our minds wrapped around this, if I had to boil the therapeutic gospel down to three statements, and this again, I, I believe is what the average teenager, and I think the average person in America believes Christianity is, it would be these three statements. I'm not a horrible person, therefore I deserve a good life. But I was given tough circumstances, a death, d- divorce, disease, cancer. I was bullied. Thankfully, God was there to comfort me through the pain. Testimonies of most Christians today. It doesn't sound all that bad, and you might be thinking, well, what's wrong with that? Well, the second two statements aren't wrong. I was given tough circumstances. I've been around the church long enough now to know that some of you have been given tough circumstances. And thankfully, God was there to comfort you through those circumstances. It's the first statement. I deserve a good life. This brings me back to the question I started with. What does God owe you? What do we actually deserve? And the Bible has an answer. Hell. And that's it. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages, this is what we're owed, the wages of sin is death, and that's talking about the second death, eternal punishment in hell. That's what we are owed. But here's the, here's the deal. When you can submit to that truth, you will find salvation. You will find contentment. You will find true, lasting happiness and joy because you will find the grace of God. The gospel of Christ starts, it has to start, it starts with a true understanding of the sinfulness of man. Let me read the the rest of this article. Al Mohler's analysis of this survey, I think it's a great um, ending statement, and it's a bold ending statement. Listen to this. Now we face the challenge of evangelizing a nation that largely considers itself Christian. This is the hardest place to evangelize, is a group of people that think they're Christians and not. We now face the challenge of evangelizing a nation that largely considers itself Christian, overwhelmingly believes in some deity, considers itself uh, eagerly religious, but has virtually no connection to historical, historic Christianity. Christian Smith and his colleagues have performed an enormous service to the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ in identifying moralistic therapeutic deism as the dominant religion of, the American, of this American age. 
our responsibility is to prepare the church to respond to this new religion. Understanding that it represents the greatest uh, competitor to biblical Christianity. More urgently, this study should warn us all that our, our failure to teach this generation of teenagers the realities and conviction of biblical Christianity will mean that their children will know even less and will be even more readily subdued by the new, this new form of paganism. This study offers um, irrefutable evidence of the challenges we now face. I mean, those are some bold statements. And the question is, are they overstatements? Is this really the, the new American religion? I want to make you aware of a movie that's coming out. We don't talk about too much of false teaching through books or through um, movies or anything like that. We'd, we'd rather teach scripture and, and be a church that understands scripture so well that we can just sniff it out. Like, that's wrong. One of the best-selling Christian books of all times, they're making a movie out, out of, over 15 million copies of this book have been sold. And the central message of this book is the therapeutic gospel. This book is called The Shack. And I know if 15 million copies have been sold, and I know this just from first service, there's plenty of you in here that has probably read this book. And there's probably someone or a few of you that absolutely loves this book. And I would just ask you, please come talk with me or Brent. We'd love to talk about it. But if I could just make one observation to get you thinking about this book and this movie that's coming out. I looked up this book on Amazon, and I looked up the reviews. Over 11,000 reviews with a 4.6 out of 5 star rating. The, the review that was voted the most helpful review by those 11,000, the most helpful review out of all the reviews has a heading that says this. As someone who despises religion, this book is exactly what everyone in America needs to read. Sorry, Bible. The reviewer continues, I'm not a religious person. I put off reading this book over a year because I saw it had something to do with God. This is one of my all-time favorite books ever. If I had to describe the Trinity, this is exactly how I always wanted to believe they were. Not all the, this religion with rules and judgments. Brent has written an art article on this um, book and this movie that's coming. We're assuming the movie's going to follow the book very well. I looked up the, uh, the trailer for the movie, and it's, it's really well done from what I can see. Um, and so we decided to write an argue and, or, uh, uh, article on it and just to make the church aware of this movie that's coming out. Um, and I encourage you to read this article that's coming. It's not out yet, but it'll be on the website um, within the next couple weeks. But 15 million copies sold 1.6 star rating on Amazon. I don't think it's an overstatement by Al Mohler. Moralistic therapeutic deism is the new American religion. There's plenty of people that say they're Christians, but we got to look at what they believe. 
And this turns me to the passage that we're in today. If you would look at Luke 7, verse 1. Luke 7, verse 1. It says, After he had finished all his sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. After he has finished his sayings, this is after the Sermon on the Plain. We spent a month or so um, on Jesus' amazing sermon found in Luke 6 and in Matthew. This is the Sermon on the Plain and the Sermon on the Mount we've been going over. Most likely this was the same sermon, just preached in two different times and places. Most people in America are probably familiar with this sermon. It's where we find the golden rule, the salt and light teaching, the laying up treasures in heaven, the log in the hypocrite's eye, and the Beatitudes. Luke 6.20 says, blessed, and in, as we've learned, that word could be and, and could appropriately be translated happy. Happy are those who are poor. They have nothing to give God. They're spiritually bankrupt. They, they can give God nothing. Happy are those that are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed or happy are, are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Matthew 5 adds, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed or happy are those that humbly understand that God owes them nothing. For those are the people that will reach out for God's grace. And God will give them everything. Ephesians 1 said, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But this is such a paradox, and I've had a hard time with this teaching, going through the Beatitudes, trying to figure out, well, what does it really mean? I mean, how can you be blessed at the same time be poor? How can you be happy when you are weeping and mourning? It's a, it's a tough teaching, and it was meant to grab people's attention, as Brent has been teaching. And I believe Luke knew this was a hard teaching and a confusing teaching, and so Luke follows up the teaching with an example. Of someone who's truly poor in spirit and who's truly blessed because of it. Chapter 6, we have the teaching, this difficult teaching. And chapter 7, right after that, we have an example. You want to be blessed and happy this morning? We all want to be blessed and happy. Follow the example of this man that's truly poor in spirit. The ironic thing is, he wasn't poor financially. Verse 2, now a centurion. A centurion was a commander of the Roman army, the most powerful army in the world in this day and age. He commanded a century, a hundred men. That's why he's called a centurion. One commentator said a centurions were considered the backbone of the Roman army, partly because they were in charge of discipline. Therefore, this was a powerful respected, financially secure man. Verse 2, Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued to him. Some context of what's going on here. Disease was widespread in this day and age. There was no modern medicine. We take modern medicines so for granted. 
No modern medicine. Disease, there was pain and suffering everywhere. People didn't live much longer than their 20s. Blindness from birth. Mothers had disease or unsanitary conditions at birth. Deafness from birth for the same reasons. Boils, skin disease, leprosy, infections. And there was no way to deal with them. But wait. Wait and see what happened. On top of this, the culture in this time thought and taught that if you were sick, if you had a disease, it was because God was punishing you. That you deserved that disease. The sick were literally poor in spirit because of what they've been told. Then Jesus comes out of nowhere and starts his ministry and starts wiping out disease in Palestine just everywhere. Walks into cities and heals everyone. Jesus healed with a word or touch. He healed immediately. He healed totally. He healed everyone. Organic diseases he healed. Even raised people from the dead. And the satyrian hears about this. And sins for Jesus because he had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. Matthew 8, who follows this story and we get a, a, a greater a picture of what ha- is happening says the servant was lying paralyzed at home and suffering terribly. And the word used here is servant. It's the Greek word doulos. It means slave. This is a satyrian slave. But Luke adds something a little interesting in verse 7 later on. The satyrian calls this slave, my servant. Same word, servant, but different Greek word. Uses pice this time, which means young child or boy. He says, my child or my boy. Probably a young child or a young boy slave, which was normal. The slave would grow up in the household and become useful as he got older. And he says he was highly valued by him, by the satyrian. The satyrian valued this boy. Why? Not because of what he can do. He was young and he was paralyzed. He was worthless as a slave. And slaves in this day and age were considered tools. If a tool stops working, you threw it out. You got rid of it. You get a new one. No. He was valued to the centurion because he was a person. A young boy that was under his care. This type of love for a slave was unheard of in this day. And it shows the character of this man. Verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders uh, of the Jews asking him to come and heal a servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and and he is the one who has built us our synagogue. Culturally, this is unheard of. It would have been offensive for a Jew to go to another Jew and say, Hey, come enter into a Roman centurion's household, the the, uh, uh, Gentiles were so despised, and especially the Roman army. This would have been offensive for a Jew to do this. So Lisa, the question, why would these Jews put themselves out there like this? Well, they explained themselves. It says, 
He is worthy. I want you to think about that. These Jews come to Jesus and say to the centurion, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. The Jewish elders were willing to put their honor on the line for this man because they respected him. And they probably had a love for him. And they give some reasons to Jesus why he should do this. The centurion loved the Jewish nation. He loved Israel. The Romans and the Greeks and everyone in that time period thought the Jews were weird. But this man loved the Jewish nation. He understood that Israel was God's nation. He understood the Jews were God's people. And he honored that. He built them a synagogue. The centurions made pretty good money, probably middle class. To help with a, a synagogue would have been a significant sacrifice. Why would he do this? Well, the synagogue was where God's word was read and taught. My guess is he had a profound love for God's word. And all this points to the fact that he loved God. At some point in this this man's life, God opened his pagan eyes to see the truth, to see God's glory for what it is. And he realized that the Jews worshiped the true God, and he honored that. Therefore, the Jews thought he is worthy. He is worthy. Think about that. They thought this man was worthy of Jesus' time. They thought he was worthy to have a hearing from Jesus. He is worthy. This is how Jews thought. They thought that, the, that those, they're those that are worthy of God's glory, namely themselves. And they thought they're the, those that aren't worthy of God's glory, namely the Gentiles. But that this man was worthy. But what does the Bible say? None are worthy. Romans 3.10 says, As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And Paul starts this in Romans by saying, it is written. In other words, this is an Old Testament concept and passage. The Jews should have known better. All are spiritually bankrupt. All are spiritually poor. But here's the amazing thing. The Jews didn't know who should have known, but a satyrian did. He understood. Look at verse 6. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, a satyrian sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. I am not worthy. The Jews said he is worthy. And he says, I am not worthy. I am a sinner. What's going on here? Well, culturally, 
Again, Jews thought Gentiles were so unclean, so dirty, that it would bring shame into a Jew's life just to enter into a Gentile's house. And I want to remind you who this man is. It's a satyrian, a, a Roman soldier. Very important, very powerful, very respected in the Gentile world. Can you picture this? A man in this position had so much respect for Jesus, said, I don't want to disgrace you by you entering into my house. Don't even come into my house. I don't want you to be disgraced. And he even adds, look at verse 7, Therefore I did not presume to come to you. I don't want you to be disgraced by just being next to me, by being associated with me. I am not worthy of you. He understood he was not worthy of Jesus. Right? He was truly poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. This is a great example of poor in spirit. This is a tough, important, powerful, capable leader, man, but poor. And Jesus came for the poor. And Jesus didn't come to the poor financially. This is not talking about wealth. He came to the poor in spirit. The centurion was not poor. And, and we see time and time again that Jesus went to the tax collectors. They were rich financially, but poor in spirit. He came to the poor in spirit. People that humbly understood that they were not worthy of him. Verse 7 again, look at this. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but just say the word and let my servant be healed. This man has such a concern for his servant and such faith in Jesus. Just say the word. Look, he understood Jesus' power. He read the miracles Jesus was doing. This was, this, was, this was proving how powerful and how much authority this man has. And his word holds power. He had amazing faith in Jesus. And he understood how authority works. Look at verse 8. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. I understand authority. I have, I'm a man under authority. I get told what to do and I do it. I have men under my authority. I say go and they go. I have authority, but it's limited. Your words, Jesus, have ultimate authority. Infinite power. And talk about faith. Just say the word, Jesus, and he'll be healed. You don't even need to come. Talk about faith and the power and sovereignty and control and the glory of God. Verse 9. This is probably the most amazing statement. When I read this I, the first time, I, I don't remember when it was, but I, I was studying for this for the high schoolers a few years ago, and I almost... It just puzzled me. Verse 9, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Wow. 
I mean, I didn't even know what to think when I first read this. Thumazo is the word in Greek, which means marveled or amazed. There's amazement or wonder. There's a sense of surprise. And my mind, my the theology in my head goes, wait a second, how could God be surprised? The only thing I can think of is that Jesus in his humanness was surprised. The divine nature knew this man's heart, but Jesus in his humanness was, was, was surprised. He was marveled, he was amazed at this man's faith. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And this is a man that had faith in Jesus in the hard times. This boy must have been like a son to him. And he said, you don't even need to come to my house. Just say the word, Jesus. And I'm not worthy for you to even do that. This is a man that was poor in spirit. This is a model to us. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. You should have this faith, Israel. You have the scriptures. You should know this. This Gentile has more faith than all of you. In Matthew 8, Jesus adds this. Same story. Get a clearer picture when you add the two together, Matthew and Luke. And, and Jesus adds this. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who are those from the east and the west? Us. <laughs> Gentiles. If you're not fully Jew in here, Jesus is predicting that the church would be mostly full of Gentiles. I mean, how radical. I mean, think about what Jesus just said to Jews. The Jews thought the Messiah would come, this, this, this chosen one that the Old Testament has talked about, their Messiah would come and wipe out all the Gentiles, kill them, get rid of them, throw them off the face of the earth, and establish a kingdom. For the Israelites. Because God owed them a kingdom. Because they thought they were worthy of a kingdom and no one else was. And Jesus says, I'm going to do the opposite. Those from the east and the west, Gentiles, will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of the Jewish nation. In the kingdom of heaven. Wow. No wonder they wanted to kill him. And he takes it a step further. While the sons of the kingdom, this is the Jews, who aren't poor in spirit, who thought God owed them something, who thought they were worthy, will be thrown into the outer darkness in the place that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jews thought they were worthy just because they were Jews. They were sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God owed them something. But Jesus is making it very clear and, and saying, you are not worthy. 
Therefore, you need me. And you need to be like the centurion. Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You see how radical this teaching would have been for the Jewish audience. Verse 10, And when those uh, who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus was always willing to back up his teaching and back up his sayings with miracles so you know that what he is saying is true. This is an amazing story. The man that amazed Jesus by his faith. Right? This is obviously an example to us. And it leads me to some application questions. Are you poor in spirit? What's that mean? Do your actions and attitudes look like the centurion? Right? I mean, I know the teaching's hard, but the example is, is, is clear. This man that amazed Jesus by his humility and faith. And if you say, I don't know, let me ask you this question. Would people around you say you're poor in spirit like the centurion? Or is God nothing more than your big therapist in the sky? That you only reach out to when life doesn't go the way you think it should. Do you believe God owes you a good life? Because I want to be extremely clear this morning. Only the poor in spirit will enter into the kingdom of God. And they will find happiness eternally because they will find God's grace. Look, the gospel starts with a true understanding who we are. It starts with a true understanding of who God is. And then it presents a big problem. How are we going to have a relationship with this God when there's such a separation between us and him? And only those that understand that will humbly cry out for mercy. And God is a God of grace and mercy. What does God owe you? Nothing. But what is he offering you? Everything. Through his grace through his son on the cross. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus this morning, if there's the crowd this big, there has to be someone that is wondering what this Christian faith is all about. It's that. God the Father sent his son to die on the cross so the wages we owed would be placed on his back and we would get everything. Put your faith in him. Understand who you truly are. He rose on the third day and he's sitting the right hand of the Father. And those that put their faith in him will spend eternity with him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you. We thank you because we know we don't deserve what you have given us. 
God, all the honor goes to the giver, and you're the one that gives grace, the free gift of salvation. It costs us nothing. It costs you everything. It costs you your son on that cross. God, we should be poor in spirit daily, humbly understanding that all the blessings that have been given to us are just grace. We have nothing to do with our lives. We didn't ask to be born. We didn't ask to live. We don't ask for our heart to beat. You give us those things. Air to breathe. Rain to grow food. God, we should humbly come to you daily, knowing who we are, knowing who you are. God, because that's where salvation is, and not just salvation, Lord, that's where joy is. As we leave this morning, Lord, and celebrate the excellence of sports, Lord, if we're watching the Super Bowl, I pray that we're reminded through all the commercials and everything just how blessed we are. I pray that points to what you have given us through your Son. Be with us today, Lord. In your precious Son's name, amen.